Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 25, 19 through 34. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, <clears throat> sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thank you, Holly, for reading our scripture this morning. Good morning to all of you. My name's Emily, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of serving with Pastor Donovan and Pastor Jeff. And we are starting together a new sermon series today called Imperfect. What in the world is that about? Well, some months ago, some of the pastors and uh, staff and I were talking about social media, the pressures of it. And how it can make us sometimes feel like we need to have perfect lives because it looks like other people certainly do. People usually post the best pictures, you know, and the best of their lives, the best of their kids and grandkids, the best of their careers, their best friendships, the best pictures of their marriage and anniversaries, the good hair days only, and the winning games. We see that and may feel like our lives just don't measure up. Our lives certainly are not spinning on some perfect axis with everything going as it should be. What we see are our bad hair days. Marriages with ups and downs or maybe barely hanging on. Kids were having trouble getting up and getting ready for school. Days when we'd rather not go to work. Days when the dog throws up and those times when we don't win the ball game. We end up comparing what we don't really know about other people to what we deeply know about ourselves. And we always come up short because we do when what we're measuring ourselves up against wasn't real to begin with. 
We don't have to be on social media to know what it feels like to think that others have it all together and we don't. Oh. We all have times when we feel like we are not enough for church even or maybe for God. That's what this sermon series is about. So will you pray with me? Holy, holy God. I pray that you would get me out of the way this morning and that this message would be your message and your words. Shape whatever it is so that people hear what you want them and need them to hear this day. And may the words of our mouths, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock, our Savior, our Redeemer, our strength and our refuge. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, I was perhaps five years old and I was in trouble, though I don't remember what I had done. Perhaps I had scratched my older sister's nose till it bled yet again. Or perhaps I was talking back to my mom. I don't remember. What I do remember is that my mom had sent me and my sister into the house to await my discipline, whatever that would be. And I was scared and I was worried. And my sister had a great idea. She suggested that I hide and then my mother would never find me. (laughs) And if my mother could never find me, her theory was the punishment or discipline would never occur and I would not have to worry about it again. So she suggested we go down the hall to where the family clothes hamper was and I crawl in it. It was about this wide and about this high. I thought that was a pretty good idea. So she held up the lid, helped me crawl inside and closed it down over me. I did not think about how long I might have to live in the family clothes hamper or who might be able to sneak me some food. But I do remember my sister saying, be quiet and don't say a word and she'll never find you. Well, I remember hearing my mother then come in the back door of the house. I heard her yell out my first name and my middle name, which is the universal indicator that I was still in trouble. I made no sound. I stayed very still. And then the next sound I heard was my mother saying yet again my first name and my middle. And I didn't make a sound. I held my breath. And the next thing I heard was not my mother's voice, but my sister's. And she said quite cheerfully, Emily's hiding. I know where she is. She's in the clothes hamper. I'll show you. My sister took my mother by the hand and walked her all the way down through the house to the end of the hallway where the hamper was and she opened it right up where I was hiding in the mess and smell of the dirty clothes with dirty t-shirts on top of me. I was betrayed by my sister whom I had trusted the one whose idea it was for me to hide there in the first place. Siblings are not perfect. 
not mine. (laughs) I am not perfect. Far, far from it. Families are not perfect. Not mine, not then, not now. And in over 30 years of ministry, I have not yet met one perfect family. So no pressure there. (laughs) Every family is messy. One of my friends says her goal as a mom is that her kids will need a little less therapy than she did. She says that she gave up on being a perfect mom a long time ago and decided to opt instead for being an imperfect and really good one. Every family has stories to tell that would shake your world. Stories of love, stories of betrayal, stories of support, stories of pain. Families are a messy mix of it all because life is complicated and our truest colors can come out at home in those places and spaces where we share pizzas, remote controls, toothpaste tubes and sofas. Sometimes we support each other and sometimes, frankly, we don't. And we betray a sibling in a hamper of dirty clothes. Every family is imperfect. This is the norm. Give up perfectionism. Families in the Bible aren't any different. In fact, take the family today in Genesis. They wrote the book, literally, on dysfunctional families. Isaac marries Rebecca, and after some years, Rebecca is expecting twins in what turns out to be a very difficult pregnancy. The babies wrestle in the womb and come out fighting in a pattern that marks them for their entire lives. Isaac and Rebecca then blatantly, as parents, pick favorites. We know we're not supposed to do that. The father prefers the older son, the hunter, The mother prefers the younger who tends to stick closer to home. Esau is his father's son. Jacob is his mama's boy. And they are quite different. Esau, the oldest, lives moment to moment. He's careless. He acts first, thinks later. He's driven literally by his appetite. And you can have him for a bowl of stew. Jacob is shifty, sneaky, underhanded an opportunist he schemes to get what he wants he's smart he creates trouble though for himself and for others and on the day of our story Jacob preys on his brother when he is weak Esau comes in hungry from being out in the field he's famished and Jacob's made this nice lentil stew at home Esau wants some And Jacob knows it. Jacob tells him he'll give him some if Esau will sell him his birthright first. What does that mean? This was the long-standing law of primogenitor in which rights and privileges went to the firstborn son. You can read more about that in Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17, and then there are other places when that is mentioned in the Old Testament primarily as well. The birthright goes to the firstborn son who will be the leader of the family and receive twice the inheritance of the younger. Jacob dangles that bowl of lentil stew in front of very hungry Esau. 
What does it matter to Esau if he has his birthright at the moment? It's just one meal he only wants to eat. Esau acquiesces to Jacob's demand. But before Jacob will give him the stew, he makes him go one step further to swear on it, to give some legal stature to this forfeiture of the birthright, which surprisingly Esau does. Jacob gives Esau the lentil stew, adds on a little bit of bread for good measure. It is not an innocent exchange. Jacob knows exactly what he's doing. Esau has been betrayed by his brother in his own version of dirty laundry. Jacob will now have two-thirds of the inheritance and the position of the family leader when their father passes away not quite equal to the value of a little lunch. Esau has without forethought given away his family position, responsibility, and Jacob has eagerly stolen it. That's our story, and it is not a pretty one. This is an imperfect family. And what in the world can we gain out of reading a story like this of two contentious brothers? We won't find much that is helpful in it about being a healthy family. If we're looking for that, when we turn to Genesis, we will be sorely disappointed. There is more in Genesis about dysfunctional families than there is about how to love or have a healthy relationship with those who are your family. What strikes me about this story is that Jacob with all his imperfections, is chosen by God. Interesting, right? Jacob, of all people, chosen by God. And as the story continues, he will not only continue to have conflict with other people, he will ultimately be the father of Israel, of the twelve tribes. He will be part of the lineage of Jesus as listed in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. He is chosen by God who loves him and sees beyond his imperfection. The point is that this would be a completely different story if God chose two perfect brothers with two perfect parents who had a perfect marriage and lots of good hair days that they posted and lived in a lovely suburb with manicured lawns and never paid their bills late and never once forgot a science fair project and lived in this lovely place, went to church every Sunday and tithed and were charismatic and athletic and attractive and lived model lives in Stafford, Virginia. But that is not the story, because this is not social media. (laughs) Thank goodness. The point is that God chooses unlikely imperfect people to carry out God's purposes in this world, and it has always been that way. Think about it. Other superstars in the Bible. Moses was a murderer. Noah drank too much. Rahab was a prostitute. King David was both a murderer and an adulterer. Peter was brash and a betrayer. Gideon was a coward. Jonah ran from God. Jacob was a conniver and a cheat. 
And people wrestled with illnesses too. Elijah suffered from depression. Saul struggled with mental illness. And all of them were chosen and loved in spite of imperfection, because of imperfection. Does it even matter? It's not about who we are, but about who God is and what God can redeem. God's calling, blessing, and mercy are never based on what we do or do not do. We all have our own dirty laundry in which we sit and sometimes hide, hoping that no one will find us. God's grace is a gift, one that we cannot earn. It's God's grace that makes us enough. If you've ever thought, oh, God will love me if, you're not alone. God's love is unconditional by definition. That's what it is. Something we cannot earn with some version of a perfect life. It just doesn't work that way. This is the pattern of every calling in the Bible. That God always chooses people who are flawed and messy and imperfect like me and like you every single day. And maybe you're one of those lucky people who never wrestles with that feeling that I'm not enough. I don't know what that's like to not wrestle with it. I've wrestled with it my whole life. And there are those moments when I feel God's love and grace washing over me in a way that tells me I'm wrong. And that because of God's grace, I get to be enough too. The good news is that grace doesn't say, if you do such and such, fill in the blank, then God will love you. We can't start God's loving us. We can't stop it. It is simply a given, and there's nothing we can do about it. (laughs) That is the perfect thing about imperfect people is that God loves us, that you are a masterpiece designed by God and growing. Jacob, frankly, is who he is. (laughs) Take him or leave him. We may wish that he were a better role model for something, but we might not find it in his story yet. (laughs) But God loves him, chooses him, and there is nothing that Jacob does that can stop that. I like the way uh, Paul Tillich, who was a theologian in the 20th century, writes about this. He says, you may think you are not enough. The gift is to simply accept the fact that you are accepted by that which is greater than you. And when you feel that, we experience grace. After such an experience of grace, things may not change, and yet everything 
is changed and transformed. Because in that moment, grace conquers sin and reconciliation bridges any gulf of estrangement from ourselves or from others or from God. Through this motley family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God blesses the world. Our families are messy like theirs too. Maybe not as bad as Jacob. (laughs) But God's choosing of Jacob, do you see, makes room for all of us to be chosen and loved, no matter our imperfections. When I was five years old, I was lifted out of that mess and smell of the dirty clothes hamper. Guilty of who knows what, I still don't remember. What I do remember about that day is being forgiven. I remember the gift of grace. I remember my mom putting her hands on my shoulders and lifting me out of the dirty clothes so I could be closer to her again. God redeems our dirty laundry too. Whatever it is. That's what scripture says. God calls us and loves us in our imperfection and brokenness and tells us we are enough in the gift of grace. Let God reach in and pull you out a little closer too. Amen and amen.